This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? The plan is not living jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. Should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have Episode 84. I'm your co host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we have a very special guest joining us to talk about some very interesting and dark topics from uh, American history in the 1970s. Uh, we have with us Joe Green. Joe, are you there? I'm here. How's it going? It's great. Very happy to have you here. Um, so we, we reached out to invite you on. Um, to talk about a few things, I think the biggest thing we will get into today is the entire phenomenon of Jonestown and the People's Temple. But I know from, I've heard you before, I became aware of you, I think I heard you on Ed Opperman a couple of times over the years, okay. <clears throat> and always really enjoyed your uh, your appearances there. And I know that you were a very knowledgeable researcher on a lot of these topics that come up pretty often on Sublima Jihad. Like, uh, so I guess... If you'd like to maybe introduce yourself a little bit in your background and kind of how you got into these topics. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, the sort of short answer is that um, one was 9-11 um, mm-hmm. because that changed how I viewed almost everything um, because of how uh, clearly problematic the cover story was in that happening um it was like are you guys serious like this is for real you know and the other thing that happened was i was hired to write a screenplay for this guy who was making an independent film in austin i'm from i live in texas i mean i live in san antonio and uh, but at the time i was living in austin this guy wanted to make this independent picture um i write plays and i'm, I'm a writer of of different things and um so he hired me to write this thing but he wanted me to do some investigation into the kennedy assassination because he wanted it to tie into the story that he wanted me to tell and i was like okay sure so he gave me a couple books and having grown up in an academic family my father's professor retired professor of history um i had never taken quote-unquote conspiracy theories very seriously and so I read these books and I was like, well, geez, this isn't uh, lunacy. This is fairly logical, actually. This, you know, this is just the kind of the kind of analysis I would expect to read in, you know, anything in sociology or anything else. 
Uh, it just so happens to be about a taboo subject. And then having realized that, um, I then read a book called Secret and Suppressed, which had an article by John Judge called The Black Hole of Guiana. Mm-hmm. And that article like took the top of my head off because this was a highly academic work with 175 footnotes for a, like a 12-page article. And it was it completely turned around what Jonestown was. Like I assumed like everybody else that Jonestown was, you know, who drank the Kool-Aid and all that stuff. And like, mm-hmm. and none of that is true. Like almost nothing about what people are told about Jonestown is true. And, um, so I said, I gotta, I gotta meet this guy. And at the time the coalition on political assassinations was having meetings every year in Dallas on, uh, November, uh, um, typically around November 22nd. And so I just drove up there. I drove up uh, to Dallas. I met John Judge in the breakfast room of uh, what was then the Hotel Lawrence. And fortunately, now it's like La Quinta or something. And um, we talked for a few hours, and he completely took my head off about every subject imaginable. And after that, I was in. And so I kind of became his right-hand man, I guess you would say. Um, I would just started helping out. Copa whenever I could and every year I would go to the um, to the conferences and I got to meet all these people and some of them became my friends and there were other people like you know uh, Randy Benson who was making a documentary about John at that time and um, which I ended up being the research consultant on a film called The Searchers and uh, and other folks um, that have become my friends that I talk to all the time um, and so I helped John on various things until he died, unfortunately, uh, 2014, um, right after the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination and in the middle of a project where I was helping to make a film about the Kennedy assassination and also, uh, a Hollywood motion picture about it. Cause I'd gotten hired by this, this other group, which is another long story. Um, and mm-hmm. I am, I think I would say that in general, as a researcher, one of the things that I've tried to do in all of my work is to call back to a procedure of investigation that is birthed from John Judge, uh, because he was my mentor, and his mentor, Mae Brussel, and Penn Jones. Oh, yes. And yes. Uh, Robert Cutler. These are so that is if you if you're making a family mm. tree of researchers, that is my tree. I go back to Mae Brussel, um, and so she's like my grandma, even though I never met her. Um, that that's a very strong conspiracy yeah. oak um, <laughs> to be to, to be a, a branch of. <laughs> I would say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. We're big fans of Mae Brussel uh, on Subliminal Jihad. You might have heard before. And uh, and I definitely see that lineage in your work, the stuff I've uh, read of yours and uh, the way you talk about this stuff. And I think I think that's really cool. I mean, even Khaled and I have, to a certain degree, like a little bit of like an arts background and in Khaled's case, an academic background. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can say it was through working on some screenplays that I got sucked into some of these topics by just researching them 
them in earnest to look for, hey, what's the most compelling thing? What really happened and all that stuff. And then when you start to turn over some of these rocks, you know, <laughs> it starts to, it, you can't really, unsee, I mean, maybe a lot of people can unsee it or they can compartmentalize it or just, you know, it's like seeing a ghost when they were a kid. They just kind of, you know, put it away in their brain. But I don't know, for for me, it definitely sounds like for you, once you discovered certain things, these were ontologically disruptive things that kind of made it hard to put back inside of Pandora's box. And I feel like it has to influence like any kind of written or literary or artistic work that you do, right? Yes, definitely. And that's, and so, and I've, I've written about this a little bit in, uh, I don't remember if it was Descending Views 1 or 2, but I've written about it about the, what I call the academic mindset. Because when I first saw the film JFK, the Oliver Stone picture, it was in 1992, I think it was. So I was 20, I was 21, right? So I was still in, I was still in college. And when I saw the film, I thought it was a terrific movie. I thought, man, this is a great movie. But it never occurred to me <laughs> to treat any of its uh, theses literally. Like I just said, oh, this is an uh -huh. example of a film that posits a conspiracy in the assassination of President Kennedy and does so in this incredibly artistic and in the aesthetic tradition of like Russian films um, with the, with the montage, mm, yeah. you know? And, um, mm -hmm. and so I said, okay, you know, and so all I did was I categorized it and I came to understand later that that comes from academic training because that's basically what you do is you see things and you categorize them and you go, okay, that's an example of that. But at a certain mm, level, that, that's so, yeah, you know, when it, but if you're not directly working on that thing, like that is not your field of expertise, you go, oh, that's an example of that. And you sort of move on. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about that the other day. I was talking with some people the other day about Thomas Pynchon and mm -hmm. uh, in particular, his most recent novel bleeding edge and how, we were, I mean, we were discussing it, you know, with the, the, all of the subterranean kind of connections and links that he makes even between like the early internet and like 9-11 and all this other stuff. And I think once you read enough pension books, it, at, at least at this point in my life, it is so plainfully, ob painfully obvious to me that he is basically what you would call a quote unquote conspiracy theorist or a conspiracy believer, you know, a truther, if you will. But he kind of works it. He works it into his novels in a very interesting kind of sub rosa kind of way. But I, I, I was discussing with some other people like how the literary establishment and say you know the New York Times book review or whatever they almost have this way of being able to like not notice that like yes. they miss the forest for the trees with Pynchon and they focus on his 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 sense of wackiness his postmodern deconstructionalist kind of tendencies or he's just like having fun with the notion that we can't know everything that's happening but it's like I'm reading it and I'm like no no he literally knows that like some kind of you know wasp faction of the CIA killed JFK he knows about Bobby Kennedy he knows about he makes jokes about it that you can kind of notice and he's very up on and I think same about 9-11 and it's it's just it's kind of fascinating though how like even something as literal as JFK here's a movie about how forces in the government like well, hatch a conspiracy to murder the president got away with it people can still look and be like yeah well you know it's not like literally true but it's yes. like well then yes. how I don't know like how are you not outraged by the movie in some way um 
it's it's a little bit it's an odd form of compartmentalization that can happen uh, a lot in American culture and it even ties weirdly I don't know if that has some kind of weird influence to like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the Tarantino movie from a couple years ago that like literally rewrites like the the even the kind of uh, admittedly you know very rickety official story of the Manson murders as like this kind of like revenge fantasy thing and I remember talking to people that had seen it and kind of liked the movie I'm maybe like younger people like closer to young millennials or zoomers that are like kind of like oh that's not what happened you know what I mean like they don't even know the regular story and so it's like I was very angry at that movie for doing that it's like I kind of got what he was doing but it was like dude you're right after chaos comes out you're gonna put out this fucking movie you know and then just kind of be like like totally buy into the Vincent Bugliosi bullshit about it and totally just like add another layer of unreality on top of it that's gonna make it even harder for people to like dig down and see like what was really going so it's it's a hefty challenge we have for ourselves i think from academia across to the arts if you want to talk about these subjects like it it's weird how people can kind of turn off their brain or like not notice something even if you're practically putting it like in their face so yeah yeah Yeah, for sure Mm -hmm. oh i'm sorry Oh, uh, yeah, I was just saying that, uh, you know, I was reading uh, this article that uh, Dimitri had dug up. Uh, I think it was sort of an older article that was published in, I guess, a journal about popular culture that had to do with, it was called uh, Reconstructing Reality, Conspiracy Theories About Jonestown. And, uh, you know, the article uh, went over a bunch of different uh, theories about the events of Jonestown and, you know, uh, it kind of spoke out of both sides of its mouth in certain ways. Uh, Rebecca Moore is the author. And, on, you know, on one hand, it was saying there are many mysteries about the events of Jonestown. You know, uh, I'm not trying to say that I have a clear, like, you know, definitive picture of what happened. But, you know, the problem with these conspiracy theories and, you know, she mentions John Judge, uh, you know, among others, uh, you know, that run the gamut, you know, some being like uh, they were good socialists and it was all a cover-up, you know, they were all, like, killed because they were, you know, really, like, a good revolutionary socialist organization to, you know, something, you know, more along the lines that they, it was a CIA mind control experiment, something that I think, an idea that I think that maybe uh, we're all more partial to, but she would then say, like, the, you know, these conspiracy theories actually are quite rigorous and are quite plausible. There's nothing really about them that is, uh, you know, absurd per se. Her problem was that they seem to create, she was saying they make a world where, you know, there's a scapegoat or something or that it allows us to not deal with the evil in humanity because we can blame it on the conspirators. And it's like, well, the conspirators <laughs> in most cases are human, you know, like, uh, yeah. like certainly everything that they do, any other human being is theoretically capable of. Like they're not like the main, you know, uh, certainly in these conspiracies about Jonestown, there aren't usually supernatural or, you know, demonic elements at play. But it's kind of just like a bunch of stock lines about the idea of conspiracy, but that one like sort of falls back on. But under scrutiny, they don't really hold up. Like, you know, these these are just alternative narratives that really are a lot of the time just as plausible as 
whatever the mainstream narrative is. They're just not that narrative. Yeah, yeah. it reminds me of the cliche. I, I think I even heard it as as soon as like within the last five days. I think I've seen somebody either posting it about the RFK assassination or 9/11, which is that well, you know, conspiracy theories are appealing to people because they offer a simple narrative that is just a little bit more comforting than the messy, random, chaotic reality of like whatever the yes. official story is. And I'm like, I feel like that is completely backwards. I don't know about you, Joe. That there's no <laughs> like, room for ambiguity. Like, I, well, again, like the conspiracy theory has just become like a f- completely floating signifier that much yes. like, I don't know, terrorism or something like that, that really just means nothing. And it certainly doesn't have anything to do with like the actual literal meaning of a conspiracy in uh, like i.e. a group of people like working together to achieve a goal that's often concealed from others you know yeah. it's just like this bizarre floating signifier you know uh of like you know a, a narrative without ambiguity which of course isn't really true of most things that are considered to be conspiracy theories uh you know and are dismissed as such that's a yeah and that's sort of a i would say an intellectual response or an attempt at an intellectual response to conspiracy theories. And what it, what I've tried to do in the past in my work is point out that we have this enormous covert apparatus at our disposal that historians agree was used to take out, like, Jacob Arbenz, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, or, uh, or uh, in... Uh, I just lost. I just lost the name. Uh, anyway, Allende, Allende in Chile. Uh, yes, yeah, like Salvador Allende, exactly. Salvador Allende, and in you know in Iraq, and um, all these different things going all the way back to. I mean, going back to forty-seven in in Greece, and then all through mm-hmm. the fifties in the Middle East. So we've been doing all this stuff, but apparently it stops domestically. So, yeah, it's interesting how there's always a horizon of like comprehension, like. Uh, Something that we bring up on the show a lot uh, is a little passage in Carl Oglesby's book where he was talking to like a group of people and they were like, how can you say there's a conspiracy at the highest levels, you know? And then he just kind of asked them like as a thought experiment, well, what about like your own jobs, your own work environments? Yeah. Like, and then they would just like go on at length about how, you know, there are all this like uh, backroom deals and like backstabbing and blackmail. And like there's there's copious examples of things that like come to light, but before certain sources of authority have, like, put a stamp on it as something that's real, or, like, when it passes a certain horizon, like, you know, these sort of uh, ceremonially, uh, you know, awesome or majestic aspects of the government or, like, our own culture or something, it then becomes unthinkable. It's very, yeah, sorry, but... Uh, yeah, well, it, it's, yeah. you know, the notion that, like, as evil as people in government and business and everything could be, like, they wouldn't kill 3,000 of their own citizens in downtown Manhattan, would they? That's just too far. That they would not, ne- you know, there's a kind of, I think there's a real, like, hard psychological barrier with a lot of just regular Americans where... Like, there's something, like, you can kind of believe it, that, okay, yeah, we trained death squads in Central America in the 80s and overthrew 40 governments, et cetera, et cetera. But would we come back? Would we allow the chickens to come home back to roost just the way we did? But then when we get into the topic we're focusing on today, would the U.S. government play an active role in, say, the murder of about 900 American citizens? 
yeah. you know, regardless of whether they're in the borders of the United States when it happened. Uh, I don't know. Like in this case, it seems like somebody was more than willing or thought it was necessary to do so. So, yeah, yeah. that was an interesting um, aspect of that Rebecca Moore article, too. She was saying that people couldn't deal with the idea that like people would commit suicide. And so, therefore, like, they had to deal with the ridiculous idea that, like, people would, like, 900 people will be killed. But that, okay. yeah, obviously makes no sense. Like, you know, I yeah. don't think that anyone really finds it absurd that someone would commit suicide. Or, you know, and she was suggesting that, like, it would be crazy to think. And I don't necessarily know if, like, the theory that she was uh, disputing is is true or, or whatever, but she was saying, like, oh, how absurd to say that 900 people would die just for the sake of protecting or, you know, uh, doing damage to one person. Just, like, I'm like, are you kidding me? These lives, like, of certain people mean nothing to, like, you know, a lot of people. Like, the average American's life is, like, you know, their conveniences are, like, built in the back of so much brutality and misery sure. around the world. Like, it just, yeah, but... Anyway, sorry. You're pointing out the, uh, I think the, the critical issue there is it's armchair theorizing. And I think that quote unquote conspiracy theories or researchers or parapolitical folks get accused of being armchair theorists. But in fact, the reason that somebody becomes a quote unquote conspiracy theorist is because they actually did some reading. Was, nobody starts yeah. out that way, right? wanting to overthrow mm -hmm. the history that they were taught in school. It's just that when they start to go look at newspapers of the time or document documents from the government, they discover, oh, crap, like none of this was true. And you become, therefore, critical of the official government stories in all of these different situations. We don't just invent stuff. You know, one of the yes. classic one with Jonestown, I mean, literally a year before anything happened at Jonestown, May Brussel said that it was an MK Ultra camp for training assassins. Okay. And wow. May had figured that out I mean, reading newspapers. <laughs> and because she It's amazing what she was able to nail yes. at the time it was happening with all these cases yes. just by researching things. Because she knew who the players were. It's like, oh, that's not mm -hmm. good. If Jim mm -hmm. Jones is down in Guyana, that means bad things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, that was something that I, I was thinking, uh, in relation to Pynchon the other day that like all the characters, there's a few characters in the novel, uh, bleeding edge right after nine 11 happens that are immediately like, this is the Reichstag fire. This is Bush and his gang. They knew this was going to happen. They probably were instrumental in it happening and they're going to go rampage across the middle East. And, and by the way, the internet is going to become a tool of control of command and control, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, even if, we allow that the official narrative of 9-11 is 100% true, the paranoid conspiracy theorists uh, in that novel end up being way more correct about what's about to happen in the coming decade than everybody else who isn't one, who is basically just stunned and kind of dissociated by 9-11 and very passive and kind of allows, like, the Bush administration, base, even if they're a liberal, like, kind of lets them run rampant because mm -hmm. you don't, you aren't armed with, like, this knowledge already to be like, hey, wait a minute. And so I think in a sense it's kind of like people always talk about, you know, can we afford in a free democratic society to just allow all this conspiracy theorizing to just float around and it's kind of like well in some ways like can we afford not to be a little paranoid about the people that have the most power because even if you're not a hundred percent like bullseye accurate with all the facts
facts or you don't have all the facts yet, if you're basing your assumptions off of research that you've done that you can, you know, rely on is like true. Like say if you know everything about Iran Contra, if you've read a ton of shit about Iran Contra, mm-hmm. and then you look at like the Bush gang and you look at 9-11, hmm, I don't know. They executed like a vast right-wing conspiracy over the course of the 80s and then basically pretty much, even though they almost got caught, like, through a stroke of luck by some Sandinista rocket launcher, like, they ultimately all got away with it. So is, you know, should we absolutely approach, like, the Bush administration with just the, the supreme presumption of innocence when something like like 9-11 happens and then they start, you know, they fire up the war machine and go off and do what they do. So I think like, you know, even the speculation, and I think it's like important, obviously, to be honest when you don't have the facts, like, you know, we don't want to be Alex Jones here and just like assert things, you know, without kind of evidence or go like way too far. But I, I do think like the speculative process is is actually like really fruitful and important. And I think it gets you closer to the truth than, I don't know, a lot of these like academics who are just, you know, erming left and right and trying to find an intellectualized, like respectable way to say that we, it's, this isn't important or, you know, yeah. Sure. Well, and what gives a lie to all of it is that it is perfectly acceptable to reason in a conspiratorial way, as long as you're talking about Vladimir Putin. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. We've noticed. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. My God. I mean, I think that if there was a novel that came out that said Vladimir Putin did 9-11, like it would get like a huge spot on MSNBC. And like, you know, they'd probably be think it was cool or something. But yeah, no, it's bizarre I mean, how that's happened I was just reading now. yesterday, like an article on the MYT that was about like, you know, it, it was actually interesting because, uh, you know, of course, like the the writers who, uh, you know, the journalists of the New York Times and the editorial board, like are not a monolith or anything, but uh, they kind of indicted themselves in a way because it was about the sort of FBI whistleblower, not, uh, you know, he had been in the FBI in, in Minneapolis and, and earlier than that, I think in California, and he kind of released a lot of documents on the sort of spying programs in Muslim communities that had been happening. And they kind of indicted themselves uh, because they said, like, well, you know, it kind of got buried at the time because all the liberals, like, were so excited about, like, this was Mueller's FBI, basically. And they were, like, in love with him, you know, and he was so great. So, like, that all got brushed, like, it wasn't important, like, what the FBI was doing, like, you know, just, like, ruining, destroying people's lives. Like, in the words of the of the FBI agent, uh, you know, the whistleblower, he said, like, I helped destroy people, you know, over nothing. Terry Albury was his name, and the article said, you know, the FBI swore people to secrecy, and they had a secret set of rules that they applied that weren't the ones that they applied publicly. And, like, they're a very large organization, but it took, like, this guy, I mean, I guess he did blow the whistle, and it was revealed. But in a way, like, people don't even know about it because until now, uh, no one wanted to talk about it because the most important thing was, uh, you know, uh, the white knight, Robert Mueller, bringing down, you know, Orange Man, et cetera, you know. Who who uh, can you trust if not the first cousin once removed of Richard Bissell, the architect of the Bay of Pigs and potential co-conspirator in murdering JFK? Who can you trust if not him? You know, yes, I mean, but I mean it's, it's ridiculous. Clearly, like the whole idea, like you can't keep a secret. These organizations can't do anything privately. Like, you know, I always point to the Tuskegee experiment, sure. which like went on for like decades and decades. 
40 years. Totally, you know, like, before being revealed. Yeah, exactly. One thing that, like, really jumped out at me in reading about Jonestown to prepare for this episode was the way that, like, what eventually happened with, you know, the uh, revolutionary suicide and the the Kool-Aid. I guess, actually, it was Flavor-Aid, right, that was uh, supposed to have been consumed. But it's interesting how, like, so much of that feeds into, like, kind of not only like are the theories around Jonestown's uh, kind of written off as part of the larger uh, superstructure of like the conspiracy, like the quote unquote conspiracy theory discourse, but also like the, what happened was a great like psyop against like left wing movements. And yes. particularly like, you know, something that Jim Jones would always preach was he hated religion. He would go on and on about how awful religion was and how terrible it was for the left. And particularly interestingly, to me personally, he hated the nation of Islam. Like he would make overtures towards them and try to kind of usurp them, especially during the leadership crisis that happened after uh, Malcolm X's death. He kind of he was very big on Farrakhan and very down on on Warathin Muhammad. But like, you know, behind the scenes, he would always be talking shit about them, like in the tapes, like, you know, that we have the transcripts like he and he hated religion. But it's interesting that like now it's like, oh, this is where like this kooky religious stuff like leads for left wingers, you know, like this is where it goes like and it's yeah. uh, this is where like, you know, the nation of Islam ultimately led like all that stuff. And, you know, uh, black nationalism, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but of course, he was not an organic part of that, I think uh, I would. No, uh, no Jim, Jim yeah. Jones started yeah. out as a very, very right wing had been his whole life. I mean, he was boyhood friends with Dan Mitrioni and stayed yes. friends with Dan Mitrioni like throughout his whole life uh, until Mitrioni got tortured to death. Mm-hmm. But Jones started out as this, as this uh, right-wing figure. He, was, uh, he would organize votes for Richard Nixon. And then all of a sudden, he became, he became a, a, uh, a leftist. And when he became yeah. a leftist, he started getting introduced to all of these uh, high-level people in the San Francisco area, including Willie Brown. Yeah, yeah all Kamala Harris's friends, yes. right? Like, yeah, Kamala yeah. Harris, and who got the a whole warning. Get, Getty Newsom, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All, all those. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, you said Willie Brown got a warning not to fly right before 9-11, right. right? Which allegedly came from Condoleezza yeah. Rice, although who knows? But yes. Really? Yes. Oh, wow, okay, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, Slick Willie. Wow. I mean, mm. he was mayor of San Francisco. I grew up in the Bay Area, so I remember. I like, oh, yeah. have a long memory of, of Slick Willie. Uh, being the mayor there, and he he really had a way of dancing between the raindrops his whole career, and uh, it, he's very forthcoming sometimes when he says things like that on TV. Uh, like, yeah, I guess wow, Condoleezza Rice told him not to fly. Oof. Um, and then it's of course been, like uh, a George uh, Moscone, Harvey Milk, um, yeah, yeah, Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's uh, wife, right? Right. He got it, and and mm-hmm. he also received money to build this crazy thing out in uh, in uh, Northern California where he put uh, children and elderly folks and people with mental health issues all in the same camp. And, of course, he had no licenses. He had no, <laughs> he had no qualifications whatsoever. Uh, and then he got put in charge of the, uh, the housing uh, of San Francisco. Yeah, which Housing is, Authority in San Francisco. Like, what the hell is going on? Um, very and, weird. And it's very, very weird, weird, unless you understand that he's essentially a plant. Yeah, and some kind of asset. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, and I, as I pointed out in, and I think my zine, the, the guy who actually purchased the land out in Guyana was a CIA agent. His name is Blakely. I think it was George Blakely. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Uh, George Philip Blakely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, was he British uh, by birth? Yes, I believe so. Okay. And he was one of the like white supporters of Jim Jones that had a lot of money and, and was like from a wealthy family. And then, uh, well, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's a cover story. But uh, basically he was a conduit for a lot of money uh, to be like, you know, basically donated to the People's Temple to help, and I guess to buy that land in Guyana, right? Yeah, and to operate as something of a handler, maybe a George de Mornshill type, if you're familiar with the Kennedy assassination. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, the white Russian uh, oil man. Yeah, but yeah. you keep an eye. Who, uh, didn't, yeah, did, didn't, didn't his, ne- wasn't his nephew, like, like college roommates with George H.W. Bush or something? Some, yes, because uh, Bush. Something like that? Yeah, uh, when Mornshill allegedly killed himself with a shotgun right before he was being called yeah. to testify. He wrote a letter to George Bush frantically yes, asking him for help. It's around the same time too, right? 1977, 70, 78? 70, yeah, 77, 78, right around the time that all this stuff is happening. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there up. was, okay, because I think the, this would come back a, a little bit uh, later. Maybe we, we dive into uh, some of the other personalities involved in the actual, like, Jonestown massacre. But this was still kind of an interesting era, was it not, for a certain level of, like, the CIA was a little bit back on its heels. And yes. there was a lot of investigations in Congress. There was the Church and Pike committees. Of course, there was Congressman Leo Ryan from San Mateo, which is interestingly, you know, he was the congressman representing Silicon Valley in the 1970s. I don't, I don't know if there's any significance to that, but, you know, he ended up, uh, what was it, the Hughes-Ryan Amendment he co-sponsored, right. which uh, forced the CIA to disclose any upcoming covert operations uh, to Congress, which they very much did not like. And, of course, this is also right after George H.W. Bush had been CIA director and then was fired by Carter, replaced with Stansfield Turner, and he, in turn, fired, what was it, like 800 CIA officers, I, like career guys? CIA that were all... The, uh, they were all um, had too many foreign ties, basically, that they were either first or second generation immigrants. Um, oh, but, OK. Interesting. Yeah. And it, so uh, when Bush was put in as a CIA director, that's pretty interesting in itself because William Colby had been cooperating with the church committee to an extent that Mm-hmm. made people very upset. So he got fired and he's replaced by George Bush. And at the time, what's funny is that Bush allegedly has no ties whatsoever to the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. So why is he becoming the head? And why do they? Why does everybody agree that this is a great choice? Well, if you read the, uh, the uh, transcriptions of the Watergate tapes, um, I think it's Haldeman. I'm, I'm going off in memory here. But they say, like, uh, they're, they're talking about who they can get to do this particular thing. And the guy says, oh, just get George Bush to do it. He'll do anything we tell him. Wow. Which is very funny. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought Yeah. And at that time, I don't know, what was he, like, ambassador to China or something? That's a good question. Um, yeah. What his at that time? role was at that he, he Just like Rumsfeld, who I, I think Rumsfeld might have been, like, the ambassador to, God, what was it, like, to NATO or something? Like, he was a representative to NATO, and he got sent out of the country right before Watergate hit, and then George Bush, I think, was maybe the UN ambassador and the ambassador to China right around the time that we were opening and kind of doing the 
the sort of Nixon Mao, you know, mm-hmm. um, rapprochement. And then, so he was out of the country as well and then got to swoop back in. And then that's when you saw like Cheney, uh, Gerald Ford, who was on the Warren right. commission, you know, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, and, and then they brought in George Bush as the CIA guy. And I, we brought it up before here, but there was that memo that was accidentally uncovered, I think in 1988, that was written, uh, I think to J Edgar, either to or from J Edgar Hoover the day after the Kennedy assassination, which reported on two FBI agents going and briefing Mr. George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency yes. and asking him some questions about anti-Castro Cuban groups. And there was this whole thing in the 1988 presidential campaign where George Bush is like, that's not me. There must be another George Bush. And they apparently found like a, like a janitor yeah. named George Bush <laughs> yeah. who had worked at Langley, for, yeah. but only in like 1963. And then like after the JFK assassination, he worked for some other federal agency and he was like asked to transfer to Langley to be a janitor and then after JFK assassinated he was like transferred back out and is like yeah. I was like a janitor I never saw anything so it's almost like they hired they found another guy named George Bush to like put on payroll as like a backup if they ever it's just so bizarre and like so basically you know the, the theory going with that I mean I why would you be talking is, to the janitor about anti-Castro Cubans like right? uh, and, and why maybe would Edgar Hoover need to be briefed about that like yeah. I mean unless you're talking yeah. to the guy uh, who owned the Zapata offshore oil company when Operation Zapata, which was, I believe, the code name for the Bay of Pigs, was being planned, and all of his, like, Yale, Skull and Bones, Ivy League yeah. buddies and social contemporaries with the JM Wave Station in Miami. I mean, you know, it, it goes back a ways. I actually found in 1844 that I believe that the grandfather of George H.W. Bush and the grandfather of the Dulles Brothers actually were in the same graduating class of Yale in 1844. <laughs> so like just think about that's a whole nother level that people don't even think about of like these people these families have known each other and been in powerful positions in back and forth between the government and business for over a century even before the cold war starts so then you know the idea that like there can't and you know these guys uh i think pynchon pointed out in bleeding edge like you think this isn't possible but the people that staff these agencies are like high wasps, Mormons, and like people of that nature, or I guess maybe at the lower levels, like Jesuit trained, uh, that are almost like uh, by nature extremely secretive. That if anybody's going to be able to sustain a conspiracy of more than 50 people, it, it might be them. And, you know, maybe they've been raised from birth not to run their mouth. And yeah. on top of that, you have like the actual compartmentalization of the agencies themselves, which like does not freely, it's not like you just go on the CIA computer or whatever it was and just like pull up any information you want. It's all stovepiped, right? Like it always has been that way. And so it allows for more sinister collusions perhaps. Yeah. And if you, and I, if you go back to like somebody like Gustavus Myers, uh, he was yeah. writing about this stuff at the time. There is yeah. a tradition in the United States of an aristocracy that is not. Um, it it it's doesn't and it, it doesn't have to do with uh, England in a monarchical sense, uh, but being from England is very helpful. If your family was one of the yeah. first families to come over, that that gives you a certain authority, which is very peculiar because if you look at the United States, and you try to make like chart out racially who's at the top and who's at the bottom. At the bottom are the people who were here, like the natives, and the slaves that were brought over. And the yeah. top are the people that have the most 
ties, the most blood ties to Great Britain. Yeah. Yeah, and to a lesser extent, like the Dutch as well, like and the, the patroon Dutch. class yeah, of, of, of New Amsterdam. Yeah, I mean, with yeah. the Roosevelt Well, when you can get and, both, when you have the Anglo-Dutch connection, oof. yeah, and the all first, the better. The first, uh, you know, conquerors coming in in the 15th century uh, to Guiana were Dutch. Because at that time, there hmm. were Dutch really? colonials at that time. Oh, yes. And that was oh, one of the things, interesting. part of the reason that I, I did that Jonestown zine, um, I, I like to bring attention to May Brussel, and in this case to Robert Cutler, who did a lot of tremendous work on on uh, on the case. But also, I like to put in the stuff that they were not able to do, which is to show the 500-year history of Guiana before all this stuff happened, in which you can see that this area is full of uh, rich mineral resources, which are very difficult to extract. And there have been attempts over the hundreds of years to try and get a population there to get that stuff out and get it to the countries that matter, you know, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk about how uh, one of the peculiar things about Guiana today is that the two largest populations in Guiana are not native to Guiana. They were blacks that were imported from Africa and uh, Indians that were imported from East India. Wow. Which is, you know, extraordinary. And it's because of slavery. And furthermore, one of the things that developed in that several hundred year period is that there was a class warfare that came about because the indentured servants from East India had a slightly higher level of uh, living than the African slaves that were brought in. And there are two political parties that emerged out of those two forces that were combi- combating with one another um, over, the same, over the same tiny slice of pie, right? Wow. Yes. Yes, I remember Jim Jones even mentioning in one of his, uh, tr- you know, his ham radio transcripts about, you know, trying to want to organize the different religious groups, you know, bring together the different religious groups, because it really is like a, you know, very uh, diverse, has a, a large population from a bunch of different religions because of, of that history, you know, uh, like there's a large Hindu community and a large Muslim community, similar to, to Trinidad in a way where you can, you know, I think there's even like observances of Muharram in a, you know, uh, in a form in Trinidad due to, you know, the presence of, of Indians there uh, historically. But yeah, Definitely. it's, a, it's yeah. a unique place. Yeah. And studying those places also gives you perspective, I think, because you start thinking about these things, not in terms of conspiracies, but in terms of colonial operations. So yeah. once you understand that that's, that's the, the outlook that we're dealing with, it becomes a lot easier to understand current events. Yes, and usually it really is, like, it's interesting, you know, they'll kind of say this in, like, a patronizing way, where it's like, oh, you know, it's the oppressed people of the world who believe in these conspiracies because they they need it, you know, like, they're, they're so afraid of things that they need to reach out for these irrational conspiracies, but, like, no, it's just, like, grounded in experience that these things happen, like, deliberate attempts to destroy, like, social institutions, to destroy societies, like... You know, the destruction of, of Locke comes to mind. It's interesting, though, the, yeah, the, the sort of racial or imperial dimension of that, of that discourse, the conspiracy discourse. I mean, even in the, something we were talking about recently, the memo by uh, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule sure. on conspiracy mm-hmm. theories, you know, points out, like, why is it that these, 
you know, Muslims believe so fiercely in these conspiracy theories, like what's what's going on, you know, what's wrong with them? And uh, they, I think they even acknowledge, like, there's a certain role, uh, like, of the actual, like, you know, uh, political uh, events uh, of, you know, the actual, like, historical uh, dimension to, to this. But uh, they obviously don't, you know, really, they get very close, but they don't go all the way to draw the obvious conclusion. Yeah, um, but, like, how yeah. often do you hear about that? That they're they, they epistemologically do... crippled, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, they have to um, they, they have to acknowledge it to, like, write that paper, which ultimately talks about, like, infiltrating online conspiracy communities to cognitively disrupt them. But they do mention that, you know, the majority of the people in, like, the, the Arab world believe that 9-11 was an inside job. <laughs> Like basically, yeah. and you know, like huge, like a pretty comfortable majority, and so you know, uh, like our, I think it's a particular kind of American like chauvinism to try to like whether you know you're a liberal, you know, academic or whatever, to like really try to do some mental gymnastics to come up for a not offensive reason for why nobody fucking trusts America and <laughs> totally finds it believable that they would do such a thing. And yeah, it ends up having to like, kind of like psychopathologize them on a yep. mass scale. And, yep. you know, just like they used to say about communists were like, Oh, it's like an infection of the mind. Like it's an ideological yes. plague. That's like, you know, gets seeping in your, like we can't, uh, we, you know, make Paul Robeson wear a face mask or else he's going to spread communism when he sings, mm -hmm. you know, to the crowd of workers. It's interestingly, like, very similar to like things that Jim Jones would say about like, people you know who he had disdain for often religious people you know he would say that it was you know the people who believe in the bible or something like that who weren't truly good socialists or something i was reading one crazy transcript where he goes on about uh two palestinians who hijacked a plane i don't really trust his uh analysis of the event but he's like they were threatening to crash into the ocean you know and they said that you know there would be sharks in there or something and he's like no socialist is afraid of sharks or something you know and it like went on this long rant about how life is cancer and like you know the only cure is death and that's what true socialism is all about it's like obviously has nothing to do with like any of that but like the uh the rhetoric around like people's beliefs and like the you know, his socialism was like this twisted, like bizarre, warped uh, ideological mirror of like the, the idea of, you know, what the those people's beliefs are in some way. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, what he preached as well. So um, you're saying, you yeah, know, it was that. almost it like a... So uh, I, okay, I was just going to say, it just so happens then that Jim Jones reflects a point of view that happens to coincide neatly with, say, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And yeah, exactly, exactly. And they have the exact same views. Do the work yeah. where eighty to ninety percent black women. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got it hit. It hits a little different when you zoom out and see, like, oh, look, most of the temple leadership is a bunch of white people, and then it's mostly black and having women to that do are, like, penance by going out into the fields and things like that and him being yep. like you know it might actually uh, maybe i'll go out in the field one day you know it might come to that and like no dad please like yeah oh, uh, but yeah his view for instance of like the nation of islam coincides like completely with what the fbi would believe all the while you know he's saying like oh the cia is after us blah 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 but the CIA's yeah, he, in his seemed, back pocket. Yeah, he seemed very knowledgeable. Yeah, he seemed very knowledgeable of their methodologies in a way. He he did have seem to have like his ear to the ground in terms of uh, how they operated, kind of representing them as his enemy. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think I definitely want to talk in the second hour how uh, I think it was mentioned earlier how 
like his vision of like religious socialism or, you know, whatever it was, was like an, a tremendously effective and kind of suspiciously convenient, like shit coding of the potential of those ideals, you know, in an American context and how it just so happened that his quote, you know, his version of like socialism was almost like if a bunch of FBI guys like sat down and wrote their like most horrifying fever dream of yeah. like, you know, black Stalinism or something like that, that it has all of like, it has these tells I feel like of almost like uh, reading maybe the most anti-communist like interpretation of like what maybe, I don't know, the Soviet Union did and then embracing that fucked up version that probably isn't fully true and then like championing that as like true socialism, which kind of, I, I think has a way of shit coding. And then of course the way it all went down was like the ultimate shit coding of like, this is what happens I, if you try to build an alternative community or I you mean, try it to really combine is, socialism and religion. It really is like what a MAGA boomer would think today of like Black Lives Matter or something, you know, like it's run by a white guy, you know, like they're <laughs> an evil terrorist or, you know, like they're uh, crazy, like, you know, the, it, wokeness is a religion, you know, but it's, yeah, but it's interesting that, like, when he actually would preach, like, the things that he would say would be, like, you know, that you need atheism, like, religion is awful. Like, he would he literally insulted Jesus. Uh, like, he would say, like, things, like, that Jesus was, like, you know, a loser who, yeah. like, you know, got crucified, <laughs> things like that. And he, like, you know, uh, and he would also say, like, we need to stop being so hateful. I mean, obviously, he was white. So uh, it makes sense that he would say this, but he'd be like, we, you know, we need to stop being so hateful towards white people, all the while yes. being kind of in this like sort of weird, almost like para uh, black nationalist or like anti-white organization that sort of was also like promoting this helter skelter vision of like, you know, a white night where they would all poison food or, or something like that, you know, or do suicide bombings. That's yeah, an interesting parallel with, like, the Manson family, but, like, kind of from yes. the other end. But yes. kind of, like, is he that different from Charles Manson at the end of the day? He hobnobbed well, with famous people, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, the Manson thing is that's a more complicated uh, thing to go into because I tend to think of Charles Manson as uh, more or less a victim more than anything else. I mean, he was clearly a do too, yeah. petty, petty criminal and, you know, he's involved in drug deals and stuff like that, but... You know, obviously, I used to tell people this, and they would just look at me like I was crazy. It's like Charles Manson is the most notorious serial killer who never actually killed anybody. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, for people to unpack what that means, they'd have to look at the same thing. Like, because at the time that Manson comes out of, uh, they, were having to they were having a real issue with tune in, drop out, with kids mm -hmm. from wealthy families who no longer wanted to go to Stanford, who wanted to hang out in communes mm. and, you know, listen to music and make love, not war. And that's what Mae Brussels said, that the people who would come to hang out at her house were these teenagers who were not, it wasn't that they were homeless. It wasn't that they were poor. A lot of them came from these incredibly powerful and wealthy families and they were rejecting the whole thing. Interesting. And so it becomes, and yeah, then Vincent Bugliosi yeah. invents a conspiracy theory about these events that occurred, the Sharon Tate murder and, and so on, which are very strange. I mean, you know, uh, the details of, and Bugliosi invents this whole, uh, story, which is incredibly successful and everybody buys it. And it's successful yeah. even to this day. Like yeah. you say, I mean, Tarantino just got finished making a movie that accepts all of it. Hook, line and sinker. It's amazing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that also that just jumps out of it. That that's a really interesting point you made about the. I know Mae Russell had said that. I'd heard on broadcast before that she mm-hmm. felt like she she didn't seem to be as full as cynical as she was about all these other things. That kind of like the the rise of the hippie culture. She did feel like there was something kind of pure and kind of beautiful about it kind of earlier on that like the first hippie she would be because she lived in Carmel which like was right by Big Sur and you know kind of like a thoroughfare for a lot of that those people going up and down the coast but she didn't seem to think like oh everybody that was a hippie from the beginning was like you know a CIA MK Ultra kind of op but of course you know you had people like Tim Leary who was like probably some kind of agent and then you know everybody at Palo Alto like the Grateful Dead all those acid tests and you know Ken Kesey and all that stuff but I think in terms of like that is an interesting point and it, it even reminds me of things that like Pynchon has written like Inherent Vice you have like Mickey Wolfman the real estate guy uh, technically Jewish but wants to be a Nazi you know yeah. the big real estate kingpin yeah. who I think drops acid and has like kind of like a moral panic and decides that he wants to build a commune out in like the Nevada desert and give it all his money away for free so he gets carted off to like this MK Ultra hospital in Ojai where they basically like psyop him with like Cold War propaganda films to like get him back into the mode of being like a good capitalist so and then I think about Patty Hearst. I think about yep. um, I think about uh, what's his name? Um, uh, J.P. Getty the Third, who was kidnapped. Yep. And we when we did our episode about Andrew Getty's film, uh, Khalid read that whole passage about how he was running around in Europe, kind of like flirting around with like left wing causes. Kind of didn't seem like overly kind of into it, but was kind of flirting around with like being a hippie and just was not interested in like inheriting the Getty empire at all. Then he gets kidnapped in this like fucked up way. Patty Hearst also was like flirting with like lefty kind of things. I think, didn't she go up to Vacaville to, did, hadn't she, hadn't she actually slept with Donald DeFries like before the whole SLA thing kicked off? I don't know. I mean, that's, I've read that before. I don't know if that's true. I don't think, I think it's maybe revolutions end that. Uh, yeah. I think it is a revolution's end, which that I think, I think you're right. Cause uh, as Craster was the one who told me to read that thing. Um, mm, okay. But, okay. Uh, yeah. The, but yeah I, no, I don't think it's an accident. Uh, DeFries and Charles Manson were both at Vacaville prison. Oh, not, and Tim Leary too, for that matter. Yeah. And, and Leary, all yeah. these other serial killers. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, like, is that how these like aging, like patriarchs back in the seventies during this like tumultuous period decided to like get their children and grandchildren in line, like make an example of them or something like this is what happens to you. Well, if you start read, flirting around with. You've read McGowan stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, like I mean, weird scenes inside the canyon. Yeah, I mean, yeah. at certain at a certain point, the establishment has to maintain control over the youth, and maybe they seed some folks to get them to do it. I mean, it it it, it sounds yeah. crazy without context. Yeah, but if you understand the context, then it starts to look not so crazy. Absolutely, yeah. the voice of Jesus himself. Jesus was a way shore to teach people how to live, to get their head out of the sand or out of the sky. He said, don't pray to go to heaven. And even Paul said, don't look up to go to heaven. He said, the righteous faith saith on this wise, the word 
heaven, God, is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. Don't say who will go up to heaven and bring him down, or who shall go into the deep and bring him up from the grave. But what saith it? The word is within thee. Heaven is on earth. That's the only heaven you'll find. God is here. That's the only God you'll know. Make yourself God, the 10th chapter of God. And he said, it is written, all of you are God. He said, I'm no different than you. Everybody's a God. So Jesus is God. I am God. You are God. That if it is time for me to lay down my body, I will. But all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot bring me down until the time has come. Listen, all ye scoffers and poisoners. We're feeling good in the house of Jones today. Um, in our, our last part here, Joe, maybe if you could, I don't know, maybe really quickly walk us through what you believe, to the best of your research, actually happened in the Jonestown Massacre. Um, I think we've we've uh, we've touched upon it a little bit, which is that uh, Jim Jones is somebody who is clearly a person of interest to the Central Intelligence Agency and uh, the whatever you want to call the military industrial complex, I suppose, um, which is shown mm-hmm. by the fact that he was a friend of Dan Mitrioni and Dan Mitrioni, who was extremely notorious. Uh, and his job primarily was to train police departments in other countries how to torture the people who were trying to uh, start revolutions, mm-hmm. um, exporting COINTELPRO tactics, um, particularly in Latin America. And whenever Mitroni would go to one of these places like Brazil, for example, Jim Jones would also go. So let, let me take my buddy, Jim. Um, <laughs> And sure. the CIA actually purchases the plot of land in Guyana, which we've known uh, for hundreds of years. People have been trying to exploit it in the same way that we've exploited other parts of Latin America and unsuccessfully. And then at a certain point, uh, Leo Ryan gets onto it because of actually, ironically, because of Timothy Stone. Timothy Stone was was probably the key figure in introducing Jim Jones to Harvey Milk and Willie Brown and and Rosalind Carter and all these different people and getting them getting him embedded into that uh, sort of liberal democratic structure. And in fact, um, Harvey, the Harvey Milk thing was, is fascinating because Harvey Milk wrote a letter called In Defense of Jonestown, when Timothy Stone's parents became uh, upset that they weren't hearing from their son anymore and got Leo Ryan's ear. And Leo Ryan took a plane to Guyana to find out what was going on because he wanted to know what was happening to his constituents. Um, And that's where Leo Ryan was murdered. He was machine gunned to death on the tarmac. Uh, about 150 miles from yeah Jackson. after uh, yeah that was after visiting yeah, he, right he, he and visited, he spent 
like an afternoon there. And allegedly there was some sort of other attack that happened. Somebody tried to stab him or something, which Mark Lane got involved in that. Uh, Mark Lane was a big booster of Jonestown, as was Donald Freed. Uh, which, if, if you're familiar yes. with, this guy. I was actually gonna, I, I, I was just gonna ask about Mark <laughs> Lane just okay. as an aside because he's somebody who's like very. I mean, it, it, you, you knew John Judge and you know all these uh, JFK assassination people. He's somebody who's still, I think, like highly regarded for his JFK assassination work. But what was up with him being involved in Jonestown? Because he survives the shooting on the tarmac and makes it out. And then, but like, I mean, I don't know. Do you think that there's something sketchy about his involvement in Jonestown? Or did he get sucked into it by other people thinking that maybe this was actually like a socialist group that was being persecuted by the CIA? What do you think? Yeah, going to get me in trouble again. Okay, well, I I have talked about this before, (laughs) so I guess I will again. Um, (laughs) Mark Lane, I do believe there was something uh, sketchy, uh, definitely about his involvement. It was actually Lane and Charles Gary. Uh, Charles Gary was a lawyer for the Black Panthers. Uh, they both survived the jungles of Guyana. Uh, Mark Lane said that he tore off his underwear and left pieces of it as a trail so that he wouldn't get lost. Uh, that was his story. Um, wow. I find it very hard to believe that Mark Lane didn't know what was going on in Guyana. Um, there is one particular story that I talk about in the zine um, in which he was made aware that certain of the sandwiches had been filled with uh, sedatives. And instead of letting the people know that we're doing the tour, he just decided he wouldn't have any sandwiches. Yeah, that's right. That is not the action of somebody who is on the up and up. And of course, if you know May Brussel, you know that May Brussel instantly, instantly had a dislike of Barclay. Did not trust him right from the start. Mm -hmm. I mean... I've gone back and forth with this over the years, and I've talked with many different researchers about this over the years. I find it very hard to believe that Lane's rush to judgment was not written in earnest. Um, you know, even if I disagree with one thing or another, or he made a mistake here and there, I mean, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, but I don't know. John would always thought that, that Lane had been a plant from the start. I don't know. I do know that by the time okay. that he was Jim Jones's lawyer, uh, I think we have to say that he was compromised. And I've argued in the past that Lane was compromised because there were things in Lane's record that made him compromisable. Um, um, and if you look, okay. you can you can find evidence of what I'm talking about. I don't. I won't say what it is exactly. Um, okay. Okay. But so that is that. Well, I think that's a that's good. A, it, that is, it's very possible that that's that's what happened. Um, yeah, I've okay. I've always found it suspicious that you know Mark Lane survived Jonestown and all those other people didn't. Uh, you know, it would almost feel like if he were totally sincere and thought it was one thing and got there. I don't know. Either he would have acted differently or they would have yeah. killed him because didn't the, the shooters who showed up on the tarmac kind of went around execution style and had a very clear idea of who they wanted to execute and you yes. know, walked up and shot them in the head. Right. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah, and including Leo Ryan. Yes. And, and that's the other big issue with Jonestown. And that's the thing that, that John judge wrote about in, the Black Hole of Guyana, 
was that the Guyanese coroner, a guy named Dr. Mutu, the guy who actually mm-hmm. examined the bodies, uh, didn't really find any suicides. He thought that maybe one or two of the folks might have been suicides. But by and large, all those people were murdered. Yeah, there were others uh, shot or they had like incision marks like between their shoulder blades, like they'd been injected forcibly, right? Exactly. And yeah, yeah. so there, as far as the – and this is the guy that was on – like he's the guy. He's the coroner. He has the medical expertise. He's the one who actually looked at the bodies. Now, what comes out of Guyana in newspapers all over the world, not in Guyana, is that all these people committed suicide. And that's what everybody believes to this day. So mm-hmm. that, to mm-hmm. me, is the key point, is that all of the available evidence at the time points in one direction. Every newspaper in the world and virtually every citizen of every other country in the world thinks otherwise. Why would that be the case? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And they so, don't, they don't mean, take the tact that they don't, in other words, newspapers in America didn't say, well, despite the uh, Guyanese coroner saying this, we believe this. They just said, yeah. oh, everybody committed suicide. Just like that. And everyone, everyone really believed it. I, I remember watching a kind of local, like Cron TV, local Bay Area news report, like right after the Jonestown massacre. And I think they had Willie Brown on, maybe they had Diane Feinstein, who, you know, right after Moscone sure. was assassinated, became the mayor. And then yeah. now she's the senator for like my, literally my entire life, uh, in the state, even though <laughs> she's, like very up there in years. Um, and, uh, it seems like nothing can, you know, uh, dislodge her. But like everybody was like hemming and hawing and just like, ugh. like, uh, it did, like obviously, I, I think the the amount of shit coding it did on anybody that was like associated with them. I mean, you even had like Angela Davis and like Huey mm-hmm. Newton and people mm-hmm. like that. That a lot of people got sucked into supporting this thing, and then they look, they had this egg on their face afterwards. But then it almost makes me like. Like, oh, why couldn't Angela Davis or Huey Newton just come out and be like, all those people were murdered? But I guess then, I don't know, maybe some people, I don't know for a fact, but maybe some people did allege that, but they said that Jonestown was still a kind of legit project that was murdered, not that it was a horrifying, like, CIA mind control experiment that was wiped out. Well, and you, you have to, you have basically to, got exposed. You have to put yourself in the mindset of those folks at that time, which, you know, they don't have mm-hmm. the internet, right? So they don't have access yeah. to all this information going in all directions. What they have or the, what the major newspapers are telling me. So even if they have whispers, like even if they talk amongst themselves, like, geez, I, what was going on at that place? They don't have enough information to really go out and start taking a stand. And they're already both in big trouble because of COINTELPRO. So yeah. do they really want yeah. to... Wait, Which is really such an irony. ...that much more heat on themselves? Exactly. exactly. So, okay, because I, uh, I listened to a little... definitely something very, yeah, in time with that. Do you think that they were all murdered or, you know, like a, a, only a negligible proportion of them committed suicide? It does stick out to me that, like, they were really all about dying from, like, the transcripts that we have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe that could be part of, like, the illusion, but... I was just going to ask, actually, like, in relation yeah. to that, because I was listening to the Transmissions from Jonestown podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've listened to it. Um, I've heard I've both good and, it. like, later on, like, not-so-good things about it, but uh, I, I, th- I noticed that in the episode about the death tape that, the, you know, there's some people yeah. did speculate. Like, what do you think about the death tape in the sense of, do you believe that tape was from that night? Like, just 
like just preceding the murders, or do you think maybe there was some kind of switchery? Because they did a lot of suicide drills, right, on the white night. They did. Yeah, like that. So it could have been, like, it could, yeah, could it have been, like, a rehearsal that was then spliced over, you know, whatever tape was on the last night to present a certain narrative? Or do you think he was there actually telling everybody to commit suicide, but then off camera? I mean, when you listen to it, you know, if there's a thousand people there, you can hear there's like a crowd with him, but it's kind of unclear, like how many people really are there. So I don't know, maybe if you wanted to like split the difference, like, okay, maybe there's like a hundred or 50 or something of like the really, really hardcore believers that are still kind of like for whatever reason of abuse and conditioning and cult programming whatever like are kind of bought into this but then like the majority of the camp is out there being like what the hell is going on you know what i mean like so i don't know what do you think well so so here's the thing um i don't really get into i don't like speculating about photographs audio tapes or video right when i don't know what the hell's going on so when i listen to say i'm listening to those tapes those possibilities are all there. And you also have to remember that mm-hmm. when people arrived at Jonestown, they were immediately tied up and beat up. Like that was the first thing mm-hmm. that happened to them. Um, so if you have a bunch of guys with automatic weapons lining up people and saying, chant this, then they're mm-hmm. going to do that probably. Sure. Right? So, but as to what was actually happening, I don't know. But what I do know is that the coroner found that there were only at best a handful of suicides and that he found 900 murders. So, I mean, I can't, I can't do better than that. You know what I mean? No, it's true. That's true. And I mean, that is the most important thing at the end of the day, regardless of um, what like Jim Jones was saying, like the forensic evidence to the extent that it still exists. And they also, the it's like the U.S., government like really went out of its way to like not preserve the bodies and collect yes. them and let them basically sit out in the sun for days right until they started to make floating it and, yep. and it, yep. yeah well, yeah and then there's also of course the big yeah the, the big weird thing is that they initially announced 400 and then the body count like miraculously more than doubled and they said it was because they found the bodies of children and smaller women underneath like the bodies of the men but that just the, doesn't they seem the numerically possible. Uh, that appeared in major newspapers that they had they had trouble counting. Um, but if you look huh. at the available photographs, uh, it does not appear that any of the bodies are on top of the other bodies, bodies to any extent that would cause any sort of confusion. I feel yeah, for like, like half no the bodies that, to like, be on the other bodies. Even if you had 900 people, like you would notice that there were bodies <laughs> underneath exactly. the other bodies, like if you were doing counting. But, I mean, did the coroner really, like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, because one thing that sticks out to me is I feel like, you know, he did, if I recall correctly, say that there was, like, you know, there was, like, poison there. You know, there was poison punch. And it does stick out to me that they did. I mean, people could have been forced to take it, too. You know, that's like a, uh, people could have been, like, forced at gunpoint to drink this potion uh and it yeah it does stick out to me like from the tapes like just how much they would talk about doing this you know like beforehand it's it, it's odd i mean it it seems like you would be able to get at least some of the people to do it 
Oh, yeah. especially if you've yeah. done it, if you did it as a fake drill, which is so psychologically abusive, but you know, yeah, he basically did it multiple times like, where it was like, we're, we're all dying yeah. now. Everybody drink your punch. And then everyone did. And was like, well, that's just a test of loyalty and you all passed. Like, so maybe some people, I could see the psychology of that kind of working of like, well, maybe he's just joking again. Like maybe this is just another loyalty test, you know, basically, even though, it, I mean, it, it seemed pretty dire at that point. And, yeah. I feel like the I, element uh, yeah. of the mass suicide has to be part of like, you know, the MK testing that's being done. Like that's like such, you know, I feel like that's, it must be like a crux of it in a way. Like the, it's, the it's part of, of the reporting. It's part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily has to be the cause of anything. I, I don't, and I sort of don't think it matters that much. It's to me, it's like, um, you know, when JFK researchers start debating how many, guys were shooting at the president like guys were shooting at I mean what difference is yeah that? yeah well in uh, the abstract it's murder anyway because right. like they were like brainwashed to commit suicide or deceived exactly. into it or whatever like yeah in the abstract it doesn't really matter at all but I do find the idea of the appeal of like the ultimate mind-controlled soldier you know the Manchurian candidate you know mm-hmm. That's like the holy grail of someone who will sacrifice their life, you know, and that is such a big emphasis that comes through in these transcripts of like, you know, the idea of like, be, like I will kill myself, you know, yeah. that is like a, a very valuable thing to be able to convince someone to commit, you know, their, I mean, their, that's their life. You know, you see it kind of played out in similar ways in later events like Heaven's Gate, which I feel like might yeah. have like a similar component, like to not in the same, went to the same extent, but I, I feel like there might be some similar sus stuff who like rented a house you, uh, yeah. from the FBI informant that mm-hmm. also rented apartments to two of the 9-11 hijackers yeah yeah incidentally I mean, like, yeah um, they don't reinvent I, I do get what you mean though like the, the that, that maybe in a sense that if I mean it's since they were willing to do I mean they were drugging them there they were subjecting them to torture and all these other control things that I wouldn't put it past to them certainly morally to make this like if hey if it's just like how uh, Candy Jones, um, the yeah. you know the supermodel that claims to have been hypnotized to become you know like kind of a, a CIA spy, like basically she had a certain programming that like if she ever started to kind of like realize or the control broke down or she tried to get away from her handlers, they could somehow put her in a hypnotic state and then get her to commit suicide, like a self-destruct button. So maybe in a sense, like they had those vats of cyanide around to see, well, maybe that was the final experiment in a way though. I mean, you could just as easily see them trying to do that and then it not working. Like even with all that control, there were a lot of people that just didn't want to do it. Oh, and I'm sure that is true. I mean, even on the, they had to murder most of the people. even on a death tape, that does seem to be the case. But I definitely agree with you, Joe, that, like, regardless of this, like, it, the value of it as, like, a, a story, the value of the idea that all these people committed suicide is, like, independent of, like, you know, whether, uh, how many people actually did. Like, there is, like, you know, such a utility to that narrative that has a, a political effect in the same way the narrative of like oh muslims killed malcolm x etc cetera, etc cetera. the same type of yeah. stuff that jim jones would talk about yeah. uh you know yeah <laughs> like uh to his followers to you know sort of uh, shit coat other black leftist movements or you know black anti-imperialist movements uh no that, that's, you know, that's, this, a, that's yeah, a perfect yeah. analogy and that's uh i wrote about that and i did a review of the uh, malcolm x documentary that came out on netflix and where it's it completely avoids talking about anything other than being murdered by fellow Muslims. And it's like, guys, I mean, there's this whole other thing that everybody's missing. 
you know. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting how Jim Jones is so obsessed with that narrative and repeats it so often as like you know a way to attack the the nation of Islam. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though you know he's obviously partial to Farrakhan and trying to shore up alliances with him. You know, uh, Farrakhan, who later was in the Dianetics or now is into Dianetics and Dianetic stuff like symbol. that. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's certainly interesting that you know it to see like how much of these you know stories that yeah, it's interesting how you know he's the ultimate like crazy uh, conspiracy theorist. You know, he talks about how he's a target of conspiracies and things like that, but a lot of what he says is like yeah, you know, uh, actually stuff that the bunkers would say today. You know, like that uh, you know these these Muhammadans, you know, uh, who believe in God, like they're crazy and, uh, they're all killing each other or something, you know? Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, and even also like his, uh, I'm reading the quote, one of the quotes from his transcripts called that, uh, that you sent to me of him talking about basically MK ultra. And it's so weirdly ironic. Uh, I'll just read the little quotes here where he says, you know, uh, these days when America's house is on fire and we are in grave danger, um, now we stumbles over blah, 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 $300. We don't like to sacrifice, but it's a worthy investment. If we could do anything to stop what they've got in mind here in California, you give us a little more time to get ourselves together so we can get out of here and get on our way when, when the bomb falls to get our way to protection because they are now talking of experimentation. He kept saying UCLA, that's University of California. They've already done lobotomies there on people who really not sure the consent they got. He didn't portray it half as bad as it is. They're already doing chemicals, uh, chemical therapy, altering with drugs in the prisons. Senator Ted Kennedy told us last week, they're doing it in the feeble-minded institutions. They're doing it in the uh, mental institutions. They're already doing this. It's not a matter of what, will, of what will happen. So if we can get this man more money so we can try to influence some people to stop this, he's quite sincere, but he's a mistaken idealist. And yeah, uh, yeah he says, you know, there's no use to talk about stri- trying to stop this altering of the mind with drugs. There's no use to talk about brain surgery being stopped until we get these fat capitalists off the scene. Until the money mongers are off the scene, they will always be dealing with the minds, altering the human behavior, because what they want is every black person to go on as a slave. And they're trying to give them passive drugs, passive surgery that will dissect by incision and by uh, chemistry, introduction of drugs to alter their behavior so that they will not question the dirty, stenching, smelling ghettos that they're living in. They will not quarrel with the fact that they're making half the wages of the white person. They will not quarrel with the fact they're sent over to Vietnam to fight the rich man wars. They're trying to get a whole breed of automatons of people that will move as you. Uh, you heard him mentioning here. Right the on. doctor recommends they put a monitoring monitoring device inside the brain and from a central office, give them signals or relay signals of what their behavior is. This is horrendous. I mean, it's like Jolly I kind West. of don't disagree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's like John, he's yeah, talking yeah. about Jolly and West. And, you know, w- uh, William Joseph Bryan, the guy who maybe programmed Sirhan Sirhan yeah. and Vacaville Prison and the, uh, what was it, like the, the the commission for the prevention of violence that Reagan and his yeah. goons were trying to get started with Jolly West in California at like a Nike mickle- missile base um, to take yeah. like young of uh, juvenile offenders and do like psychosurgery on them and all this crap. So he's like, he's talking about it, but it's kind of like Lyndon LaRouche. Like then, you know, he's also like, like kind of participating in it at the same time. So like, man, what the hell? Uh, I don't know. Like, is this just, so, is this the deeper level of COINTELPRO? Yeah, no. I, it, and, and so that's the thing, right? And that was one of the first things that John was, would tell me and he would remind me, uh, is like anybody who is an infiltrator um, is telling 90% of the truth, mm. right? Because otherwise there'd be no reason 
to, to listen to the reason that you're interested in this person is because they're speaking 90% of the truth, but it's the 10% that's going to get you. So a lot of the disputes that happen in the conspiracy world, right, have to do with where you stop your research. So there are people in the Kennedy thing who think that Lyndon Johnson killed the president, period. It's Lyndon Johnson's thing. Mm -hmm. And when you investigate it, to me, uh, that seems very implausible, that that LBJ is the center of this assassination, right? It's not to say he's not involved. It's not to say he didn't know about it. There's all kinds of arguments we can talk about. But to say that he's the prime mover doesn't really make sense to me. And it also doesn't make sense in the context that we're talking about, which is a context of colonialism. Because all of this power stuff goes into these moves. And it it sounds crazy, except when you read COINTELPORO documents, they're very specific about what they're trying to prevent, right? We don't want a black messiah. They specifically want to get rid of Martin Luther King. They want to get rid of Malcolm X. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're putting it on paper, like what they want. Uh, And it just so happens that it happens, you know, by some magical, mysterious force. Um, But I, I think that you have to take all this stuff into account and not get married to any one particular theory and say, well, the lizard men did it. And so the lizard men did that and they did this other thing. It's not the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I yeah, mean, I think there's one a of the way most of looking... effective way I think to deflect like suspicion from oneself is to point the finger at like, you know, yep. it's funny reading Jim Jones talk about like they're a CIA front, they're a CIA front, yep. like to, about, you know, all uh, about everybody, you know, under the yep. sun. And, yep. you know, of course, yeah, he's going to say that. And, Part of the reason why he's so knowledgeable, it's interesting, you know, reading the diaries of the temple members, they're all reading books, like I assume under his, you know, recommendation or certainly not like, you know, against his recommendation about the CIA and about like, you know, their uh, conspiracy, like the CIA and the cult of intelligence. I think Ellen yep. Roller oh, yeah. was Mark reading, Teddy. you know, uh, she, mm-hmm. so of course, you know, it makes perfect sense. I think that he would be like sensitive to that and almost like, you know, the beam in his own eye, you know, yes. uh, the whole yes. time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And the other angle to that, in terms of like uh, really like mind fucking the left in America yes. is kind of like their overtures to the Soviet Union. That was something I wanted to ask you, Joe, about what you kind of make of that. I feel like I read something. Maybe it was like something from Pravda. Maybe it was on the 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 uh, the John Judge website. What do you make of kind of the uh, the contacts and the relationship, such as it was between like Jonestown? And the Soviets, because they were talking at one point about like, oh, maybe we'll go and start, like we'll move to the Soviet Union as like refugees and start, you know, a commune out somewhere. But I don't know. Like, what what do you got on that? I mean, it's it's certainly, it makes sense in terms of um, the Defense Department floating different ideas of what they want to do. So, as you know, uh, the... Uh, DIA, right, the uh, defense intelligence. One of the other points that JJ used to point out all the time is that the DIA has like nine times the budget of the CIA and it's completely secret. They war game all kinds of stuff, mm. right? Um, and I, mm-hmm. I made a joke about it before. Like if, if we ran our lives like the Defense Department, we would draw up all of these detailed plans about how to murder our neighbors in the event that we had to do it. Right. <laughs> Which is true. That's what they do. Right. There's somewhere in the, uh-huh. you know, in, in the defense department, you will find a paper 
we called, you know, how do we invade Canada and kill everybody in, in Canada? Yeah, um, a, a yeah, war yeah. plan red, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So, Not to mention yeah. continuity of government, Rex 84 it, and all that fun exactly, stuff. Exactly, right. The yeah. senator anyway, gavel mm-hmm. banging, you know, stop talking about this. Uh, if you've seen that yep. video. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff is, um, I feel like that's certainly a possibility. Like somebody might have said, well, maybe we can, we can figure out, we can turn, you know, Jim Jones can be a spy for us in the Soviet Union, or maybe we can get them involved in this and make them look bad. I do think that part of what's going on with uh, the Jim Jones thing is it it is part of the design, or maybe it's just a lucky accident, is to make the left look bad. Um, yeah. And one oh, of the yeah. things that I think is so fascinating is that um, when uh, Harvey Milk gets killed, the story is that this, you know, crazy guy, uh, you know, with, who was sexually frustrated or whatever, had, had his issues, killed Harvey Milk. The story was not uh, Harvey Milk is killed within nine days of Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it just yep. so happened that uh, Milk has these ties to Jonestown. He's getting money funneling into Jonestown and publicly defending it in writing. Uh, wow. So I do I think mean, that we, part of that is... Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something about milk, like we we discovered recently. I wasn't aware of this, but you remember when Gerald Ford got shot at twice in 1975 when he was visiting Northern California, um, once by Squeaky Fromm, a former yeah. member of the Manson family, and then again by Sarah Jane Moore, who was a woman who had become obsessed with Patty Hearst and had like yep. volunteered to work on like whatever the, the grocery program was that they set up for the SLA and, um, and actually almost actually would have killed, like she barely missed taking a shot at Gerald Ford, but I guess she had gotten a new gun that morning and hadn't adjusted yes. the sights. And it was like a couple inches off. And then a guy tackled her. And then that guy the next day was outed as gay by Harvey milk to the San Francisco Chronicle. And I had never known any of the story before, but it was like, it kind of like, ruined his life a little bit. I mean, it, it, yep. it wasn't really good for him. And it was like kind of without his permit, you know, definitely without his consent, uh, Harvey Milk just decided to kind of out him and be like, well, this shows that, you know, like gays aren't just, you know, sickos and bathhouses. And, you know, we could also like save the president from an assassin. But it seems like this guy right. definitely didn't get like a medal or anything and like didn't get good things coming. It was almost like, yeah, he, he interrupted he something that he maybe saving the president. Yeah. yeah, he said that he regretted doing it. Like, he so regretted he, grabbing, yeah. driving the gun. Yeah, because so his like life wasn't... Like, his parents disowned him and everything when he was outed. You know, yeah. Um, so, you know, was Harvey Milk being, like... Was he just being a little too eager and maybe a little bit, like, selfish by, like, I'm going to politicize this guy's, like, you know, actions and whatever, regardless of what happens to him? Or was it, like, I don't was know... Was he like, punishing kind of the guy who saved punishing, life? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, a little bit? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. You pull on the threads. But But it is weird. It's what I encourage people to do all the time is like pull on the threads of some of this stuff because you start to look at all of these uh, even attempted assassinations. You start coming up with all kinds of crazy things. And you can also start to map out some of the similarities between the assassins. Uh, They often come into a lot of money. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of traveling right before they, uh, you know, uh, try to kill their people. Uh, they're traveling on buses all the time from the different places. And sometimes they even work at the same place. Like, uh, you know, like John Hinckley and Mark David Chapman were both in World Vision, which is a CIA front. Yes. That allows them to go into the countries. Uh-huh. That's right. Um, I mean, yeah. it, it's 
you, you could write a whole book just on the attempted assassins, um, which I guess Mae Russell kind of did in long form over a 20 year period. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. You, you, you start to poke at all of these little different things and you find all of this crazy stuff that's all underneath and is never reported in any substantive way in either newspapers or in history books written later. Yeah. And then, and it gets into the groundwater of our culture and how we conceive of ourselves and like what our history is. So now that like saying like, don't drink the Kool-Aid is just like Mm -hmm. a kind of a benign, funny phrase that is referencing like really a heinous lie covering up uh, a quite probable mass murder of, you know, Afri- mostly African-Americans down in the jungle makes me in crazy. America. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, and people just don't interrogate, or they'll say, like, did you know? I've I seen there was a book, like, recently that came out. I forget the author, but it was kind of highlighting how tight Jones was with, like, the liberal establishment, but it was written by, like, a more conservative author, so it was like, did you know that all yeah. these sicko liberals were just hanging out with this communist preacher, blah, yeah. blah, blah, and just right. kind of making it seem like, okay, yes, he was genuinely a communist, and also all these sicko liberals Liberals just like loved him, and that means they're sick, and blah blah blah, and kind of just twist. Even that's twisting it in a away from the direction of like this guy had all these CIA ties, and you know he was just a wacky like BLM preacher who went insane, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know it's just that it's so weird. I mean, were there any other? I, I did want to ask you, are there any other churches in that era that were doing a mixture of like radical left politics and kind of like? almost like tent revival, like, you know, Protestant Christianity. Yeah, not, to my knowledge, not tent revival. Um, I mean, it's certainly black liberation theology. Um, Yes, yes, there is. And uh, and in in Central and South America was there, but it was mostly Catholic. Right, right. But as far as like revival tent radicalism, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's suicidal in a sense because the Catholic church has no interest <laughs> in reformation or revolution. Yeah. Oh know. yes, that's been made very clear. It might might yeah. affect their real estate holdings. You know, I mean, I, it's, <laughs> so it's the wrong the wrong place to expect change, in my view. Yeah, yeah. I was just, or maybe it was maybe a kind of a reaction to the nation of Islam and its influence in the black community. That oh, what if I we think did that a kind it of Christian was version a big of this? Part- Oh, I think it definitely was a big part of it. And I think that I do, I genuinely do think, I mean, it's quite obvious, like if you actually like read through the transcripts and like read like what Jim Jones was saying about the Nation of Islam and his relationship with it, like it's just how interesting that like he just hated them and fought with them. And there are all these tensions, like even in that famous book, Raven, talks about how, like, it's a quote from Jim Jones where he says, like, there were all these tensions, you know, we could barely even walk on the street, but then, like, just when, you know, Farrakhan has taken over, then it's like, oh, you know, we're going to be friends now, like, we're, you know, our movement is coming together, but, you know, behind the scenes, of course, he's talking about how, you know, just sounding like, you know, uh, like a crazy frothing right-winger after 9-11, you know, when he talks about Islam. It's interesting that he was able to, like, divert the like just right after Malcolm X dies right after Martin Luther King dies Hmm. he's like comes in you know this white dude who's like I'm God yep and like has all these people calling him dad and is able to divert like there's this really sad transcript I read where this woman is like apologizing to him because like you know when her his mom first uh, her mom first uh 
you know, told her about Jim Jones. She was like, you're calling this white man dad? And she's like, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, God, you know. I'm sorry for questions. Because I realize that it's not about, like, your skin, you know. It's about yeah. whatever, or, or, you know. But, like, which, of course, is wholly not, like, BLM, black nationalist thing, you know, that he would say, like, all the time. Like, oh, you know, it's not about the color of your skin, you know. White people are also, like, oppressed. It's just, yeah, it's very... Uh, very convenient with, like, the deep investment. Like you said, like, you know, we don't want a black messiah. Like, you know, we ended up with, like, a white black messiah, like, doing yeah. a mass suicide. Uh, and he also, like, is a communist, you know, an open, like, you know, fanatical supporter of the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, red uh, movements across the world. But he was telling, like, his congregation while saying that he was God and, like, he had the true keys of the Bible, like, just, like, you know, talking about how awful... Religion was the whole time, but then, like, still, it's so convenient because, like, afterwards it becomes a symbol of everything that is, like, awful about, like, the crazy cultic, you know, he's a cult, yes. it's a cult, uh, it's, and it's, it's also cult, left wing, perfect. It, it was able to, I guess, move a little more, uh, move a little more swiftly through American culture by having, like, this classic Christian kind of face on it, but, yeah, and it ended up just, like, sticking, shitcoating everything it came in contact with. Yes, and contributes to the general premise of the Reagan America, basically, which is that if you were doing anything other than American things, which is to say doing what you're told, yeah. going to a job, going to your, the church you've been designated to go to, then you fall into this possibility, oh my God, how many television movies in the 80s were about cults? You know, oh my God, my daughter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. It's a, yeah. Well, yeah. We, we talked about right that before, that. like all the action movies and the, yes. the cop movies. Yes. And I mean, and also like that was also happening, which is a whole nother weird level. But even mm-hmm. that I'm, you know, on my more parented side, I, I, you know, I have read Dave McGowan and I, I think about, huh, why are there's like these like cults and like serial killers that all, you know, were just like so like evil and like violent, whatever, just all happened in like the seventies and the eighties. And then, it just sort of like fell off and yep. like switched to other things. And like, there's a million reasons you could probably interrogate for that. But when you look at even like Sirhan Sirhan and stuff in like the late sixties and like people, it was in people a morgue, which is Ford. another weird thing about that. Like the whole like subcultural, like religious or not subcultural, but like subliminal, like religious dimensions, all this stuff is like very yep. fascinating. The, the dialectic between like extreme kind of vulgar Marxist atheism and like the tent revival aesthetic in Jim Jones. And then like bringing that into the eighties with like the tension and the dialectic uh, aspects of the satanic panic, which kind of like the rise of evangelicalism as like a political force and like, you know, the quote unquote religious right, uh, you know, or the quote unquote satanic panic and the quote-unquote religious right, uh, you know, and and like bringing it up to today where we have the most satanic popular culture ever um, yeah. and, you know, a very impotent left where these, like, ideas, you know, and in fact, we do see, like, I think, in my opinion, we do see, like, a blending between, like, you know, the dirtiness or the contamination of a quote-unquote conspiracy theory or, you know, an analysis of history that, like, uh, indicts uh, these uh, forces like the intelligence community or things like this in, the, in a proper way or actually, like, takes the experience of uh, people of these, uh, you know, predatory behavior seriously. That is kind of, like, seen as dirty and, and low and stupid in the same way that, like, oh, those crazy fanatics uh, who are going to chop off Charlie Hebdo's head, you know, that's what... Yeah. It's all uh, too scary and dirty and it's bad for, for the left, so we just need to keep being, like, impotent uh, and not do anything. I don't know, whatever. Like, well, with, uh, with, uh, JJ I don't know used what, to yeah. quote uh, Marty Schatz all the time. Marty Schatz wrote a book called History Will Not Absolve Us, 
And he says in that book that uh, Americans are allowed to believe anything and to know nothing. Mm. <laughs> Which cuts yeah, right to Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the California New Age uh, kind of ethos, I think, in a nutshell to, it, to a certain degree. It seeped into Silicon Valley, Hollywood, uh, and everything else. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and the, the internet, I mean, double-edged sword, really. Uh, it's allowed us to look up all these resources in a much faster way, but it's also just, like, you know, been a spigot of, like, disinformation also to make it even harder yeah. for people yeah. to, like, even get to a point of... Uh, of of contemplating, you know, something it's, like this, it's a not being what the media said. Yeah, pharmacon. Mm. Yes, it is. Poison is the cure. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, exactly. Guys, I apologize. I gotta go. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, uh, it's a perfect place to, to end. Yeah. yeah, great talking to you, Joe. Thanks for coming yeah. on, and uh, we'd love to have you back someday to talk about some other topics. I know you know so much about all these things um that, that but, uh, awesome. oh yeah real quick uh if you want to give uh, people a chance to tell them where you can find your work and uh oh yeah stuff like that uh, yeah the, the easiest place to go is to go to joe green jfk and from there you can get to everything else i i have a small press uh say something real press and i'm affiliated with the hidden history center uh and you can you can get all those links from joe green jfk awesome Awesome. JoeGreenJFK.com is that right? Yeah. 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 And uh, and on Twitter, right? And on Twitter. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll let you get out of here. But thanks so much for coming by. And Dimitri Cal is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No. It was great. It was great. Yeah. Talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. So um, until next time, dear listeners. Stay vigilant. Please. Take care, guys. Love is the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love! Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand sometimes. Generalized love, and he never even backed it up. He sucked up! Bullshit! Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got purposes, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight! I'll fight!
If you're on the retreat, you better be sure you know what you're dealing with. Because after we're all dead over here, you might go to a social party after you're trying to get your little reward, your little 30 pieces of silver for selling out the greatest people on earth. And you walk in with the Judas tribe and the wife of Judas might be one of the ladies I'd laid to make a socialist. might give you slow poison in your champagne. You don't know how clever I am. One thing you've all done is underestimate me. I made plans for treason long ago because I knew I couldn't trust nothing. I knew I couldn't trust anything but communism and the principle in me, yes, rescue. I knew that that's what I had to depend upon, not depend upon the arm of the flesh, and never put all your eggs in one basket. So, honey, I put my eggs in many places. And you figure that out if you want to. Naive, you don't know what, I'm, what, what Jim Jones is all about. You can't even follow him. You haven't even, you haven't even smelled where he's at yet. Much less followed him. You don't even know who he is, and you might miss him. If you didn't have a real good look at him, you wouldn't even know who he looked like. You really haven't gotten mixed to him, but I've got all kinds of things in store. I want you to walk with your head held I want you to live by the justice code. I want you to walk down 